0: We'll we come to Genesis chapter 40, we will actually spend the next uh, four weeks in the next three chapters and we'll, I'm still trying to work out how we will divide those three chapters. Today we were going to look at just chapter 40, uh, but we're going to have to look at chapter 40 and uh, really the, that first uh, major section in chapter 41 as well um, for it to make sense the way it needs to and as we come to genesis chapter 40 and as we gaze into this portion of the life of joseph we see some things that are recurring we see some themes of which we desperately need to be reminded Um, for example here as we get to chapter 40 and chapter 41 dreams occur again. And not only do dreams occur again, but dreams occur in pairs again. If you'll remember, when we're introduced to Joseph, there were two dreams. He had two dreams. He interpreted both dreams. Now, in chapter 40, we are introduced to the cupbearer and the baker. Two dreams. Two interpretations. Chapter 41, we are introduced to Pharaoh, who has two dreams. And there are two dreams interpretations from Joseph. So there is the continuation of this theme of Joseph and the interpretation of dreams and the theme of God communicating, revealing himself to and through Joseph. Uh, If you'll remember, as we've pointed to time and time again in Hebrews chapter 1, that famous passage about the doctrine of revelation, God having spoke to us in many portions and many ways through the fathers, in these last days, has spoken to us through his Son. So we see here the picture of these many portions and many ways in which God has communicated to and through his people. So we see this doctrine of Revelation. We also see, continued here, this theme in Joseph's life that Occurs again and again and again that everywhere Joseph goes, he's put in charge. No, no matter what happens to him, no matter how terrible his circumstances, he ends up in charge. But we also see this theme recurring here and going to concentrate on it today. This idea that no matter where Joseph goes, he doesn't belong. No matter where he goes, he doesn't belong. He's raised in Jacob's house, but he doesn't fit. He he doesn't belong. He, He goes to Egypt, and there in Egypt, in general terms, he doesn't fit. He doesn't belong. In Potiphar's house, ultimately, he doesn't fit, doesn't belong. He's in prison. He doesn't fit. He doesn't belong. He goes to the palace. He still doesn't fit and doesn't belong. And yet... All of those places were necessary in Joseph's life. Not just for Joseph individually, but as we look at this and back up and take our view from 35,000 feet and look at the picture of redemptive history, we know that all of these things were necessary not just for Joseph, but they were necessary in redemptive history as God is using Joseph to usher in this next phase of redemptive history we are going to see a major turnaround in the life of Judah. And as we see that major turnaround in the life of Judah, we we don't understand it yet in Genesis, but as we continue to move forward, we will understand the significance of the tribe of Judah, therefore the significance of this redemption of Judah in and through the story of the life of Joseph. So this is important because through Judah we get the king, about whom we read today? Well, you ask, which king? Because we read about a king in our Old Testament reading. It was King David. Then we read about King Jesus in our New Testament reading. So, which king? The answer is yes. Both kings come to us from Judah. So it's very important for redemptive history that these things happen. Now, if we're not careful, what happens is we get bogged down here, especially in chapter 40, which is why I decided to incorporate at least the beginning, that major section of, of chapter 41. We, we, we sort of get bogged down here in Joseph and what Joseph is doing. And although those things are important, they are important ultimately because of their broader implications. So as we look at this, I, I, I want you to, Understand this concept that Joseph basically fleshes out for us. There are a number of things that he fleshes out for us, not least of which is this sort of foreshadowing of the life and the ministry of Christ himself. But also there is this picture uh, that Joseph fleshes out for us of the covenant people of God. Always in the world, but not of the world. That's Joseph. Joseph. God's covenant people in the world, but not of the world. That's him. We, we, we see a picture of that in his life. He's, he's, he's in Jacob's family, but really he's almost not one of them. Now, after God gets a hold of the rest of these boys, he fits. But for now, he doesn't. He goes to Egypt, and he doesn't fit He's in Egypt, but not of Egypt. Eventually, when the nation is born and rises up, they too will be in Egypt, but not of Egypt. They just won't fit. And for those of us who are spiritual Israel, as we read there in Romans, as we started our journey through Romans, we realize that we too are in the world, but not of the world. And our life often looks very much like Joseph's experience in many ways, and I want to share those ways. In some ways, our experience looks nothing like Joseph's experience because the Redeemer's experience looks a lot more like that. But here in chapters 40 and 41, I believe there are some parallels that will help us understand how we are to live as God's covenant people in this world, but not of this world. It is a difficult balance to strike, and there's a ditch on both sides of the road. Uh, On the one side of the road, you can err on the side of in the world, and and there's worldliness. Uh, On the other side of the road, there's another ditch. That's the the not-of-the-world ditch, and there you're completely useless as far as the kingdom is concerned. So how do we strike that balance? Look with me if you will, and of course we won't won't read all of this, but, but let's read this in order to get these four major themes. Uh, the the first is, there's four tensions. The first is the tension between the word of God and the word of man. And again, in Joseph's life, that's a tension. In our life, that's a tension. Being God's covenant people in the world and not of the world, there's a tension between the word of God and the word of man. Look here in chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt... And his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended to them. They continued for some time in custody. So there's pictures of authority here. There's pictures of the authority of Pharaoh, there's pictures of the authority of the head of the prison. But then in the midst of this, something else breaks in. Because remember, here Joseph is, he's a foreigner. Not only is he a foreigner, but he is a foreigner who's in prison. But as a foreigner who's in prison, how on earth can this foreigner who's in prison have any impact whatsoever? The answer, the word of God. Verse 5. And one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We've had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. Why are you so downcast? Not because we've had dreams, but because we've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret the dreams. Not a foreign concept, the interpretation of dreams. Not at all a foreign concept. However, what we see here is different. In fact, this is not just something that's an issue in in the ancient world where people attempted to interpret dreams. We know, for example, in Daniel's time that there were individuals who were trained to interpret dreams. Unless we think that that is somehow just far-fetched and way out there, um, don't forget that one Sigmund Freud, perhaps the most famous of all psychologists of all times, devoted an entire book to the interpretation of dreams. But there is a difference between the interpretation of dreams, as understood by Sigmund Freud, and as understood by the Chaldeans, and as understood by all sorts of ancient people who have attempted to interpret dreams, and the idea that Joseph has here that is directly related to the revelation of Almighty God. Listen to what he says. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. This is an opportunity for the Word of God to break in in the midst of the Word of men. This is an opportunity for God's covenant people to be distinguished and to be set apart because they hearken to a different voice. God's people do not hearken to the voice of diviners. God's people hearken to the voice of God Himself. And here we see a picture of the voice of God Himself. Later on in chapter 41, when the king of Egypt has a dream, upon whom does he call? He calls upon the one who has the Spirit of God in order to interpret the dream. There is a tension here between the Word of God and the Word of man. There is a tension in Joseph's life as the representative of God's covenant people Between the Word of God and the Word of Man, there is always a tension between the Word of God and the Word of Man wherever God's covenant people dwell. And here's why there's a tension. Because when God speaks, everyone else must be silenced. When God speaks, every other voice takes a back seat. When God speaks... There is tension because now we have man in all of his glory who believes that he runs his own universe. And in the midst of his own universe that he believes he controls, in walks God. The cupbearer was more powerful than Joseph. The baker was more powerful than Joseph. But when the word of the Lord came, Joseph was the one on whom they had to depend the king of Egypt was more powerful than Joseph. However, when the word of the Lord came, he had to bend the ear to Joseph. God's people are in the world and not of the world, and one of the tensions is that we hearken to the word of God and not the word of man. In fact, here's why there is a tension. All's true, all truth is God's truth. Amen? So when we say we hearken to the word of God and not to the word of man, do do we actually mean that if a man speaks, that we don't listen to the man unless he's quoting a Bible verse? No, it's it's not what we mean. Uh, Again, remember the tension. The tension is we're in the world but not of the world. So even in the world, every man exists by the mercy and grace of Almighty God. Amen? I don't care who you are in here. There are people in this room today who are unregenerate men. There are people in this room today who are not saved, who are not Christian, who do not belong to God. And yet, God just gave you your last breath. And it was purely by His mercy. By the way, He just gave me my last breath and it was purely by His mercy as well. Amen? He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. But here's the tension for the believer. When an individual opens his or her mouth and speaks, just because they don't belong to God doesn't mean that everything they say is untrue. But how do we determine what is true and what is not? How do we determine what to hear and what to heed and what not to hear and what not to heed? Here's how we determine it. God has spoken and everything is weighed in the balance compared to the Word of God. That's the distinction. God has spoken. So, when an individual opens their mouth, our, our, our question doesn't even necessarily have to be, is that a Christian or is that not a Christian? Because here's a little news newsflash. It, it's not stamped on the forehead. Amen? And there are a lot of people who tell you that they belong to God who don't. Amen? So what do we determine? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the very mind of Christ. You learn to think biblically and sift everything through the Word of God. That's why it's so important for us to immerse ourselves in God's Word, so that we think biblically and learn to hearken unto the voice of the Good Shepherd. And whenever we hear something that is not in line with God's truth, we know it is in error. Why? Because of, you know, some burning in the bosom? No, because we've measured it against God's truth. That's the answer. The yardstick is God's truth. What has God revealed? That's what we measure it against. So there is this tension. And it is a constant tension. Because unfortunately, we get used to hearing the word of man and not the Word of God. In fact, for most of us, we prefer the Word of man to the Word of God. There's also a price to be paid when you have a commitment to the Word of God versus the Word of man. You don't fit too well in the world of man when you don't hearken to the Word of man and instead hearken to the Word of God. That's where Joseph finds himself. The Word of God. In fact, it's because he heartens to the Word of God and not to the Word of man, one could argue that that's the very reason that he finds himself in prison right now. Listening to the Word of God as opposed to the Word of man. And there is that tension there between the Word of God and the Word of man. God's Word always, however, is supreme in these two. What are some of those areas in our lives Where we have this tension between the Word of God and the Word of Man. A great example of this is in our laws. This tension between the Word of God and the Word of Man. Over the last several weeks, I've been in my home state of California a number of times. And again, over the last several weeks in the state of California, there's been one thing on everybody's mind. And that one thing on everybody's mind was, what is this Homosexual judge going to say about Proposition 8. Again, Proposition 8 was the law established in California a year ago in November that defined marriage between one man and one woman. 52% of the population, razor-thin margin, by the way, determined in the state of California. That they would define marriage as between one man and one woman. And they would put a stop to all of these same-sex unions that were taking place in the state of California. Now, a judge, one judge, not a panel of judges, one judge, decided that he would speak to the issue and surprise, surprise, he disagreed with the people. Now, some think that the state of California is now in the midst of a battle between the majority and the minority. They're in the midst of the battle between the voice of the people and the voice of judges. No, actually, the battle is between the word of God and the word of man. And while it's easy for us to say that, here's the question. What do we do and how do we live when the word of man confronts? And contradicts directly the word of God. Here's the answer historically. Historically, the church adapts and compromises. Historically, the church adapts and compromises. By the way, when I say the church, I use that term loosely. Historically... Individuals who claim to be the church adapt and compromise. However, the covenant people of God are marginalized because they heed the word of God as opposed to the word of man. Therein lies the tension. There's a second tension, and that's the tension between the favor of God and the favor of man. Now, interestingly enough, throughout the life of Joseph, as we've seen thus far... What we've seen is this ironic pattern where his brothers hate him, but his father loves him. Potiphar's wife betrays him, but Potiphar loved him. We see that the cupbearer has his dream interpreted and is supposed to go remember him to Pharaoh. However, he doesn't, and Joseph spends another two years in prison before he's called upon. His brothers put him in a pit. By the way, they were gracious in putting him in the pit because they wanted to put him in a grave. Potiphar puts him in prison. Potiphar was also gracious in putting him in prison because had Potiphar believed his wife, he would have had him put to death. Now, you would think if you looked at all of these, just these surface examples, that Joseph was not experiencing the favor of men. However, what happens when his brothers put him in the pit? He comes to Potiphar's house. Potiphar puts him in charge. What happens when he goes to prison? He goes to prison and the head of the prison puts him in charge. What happens when he goes to the palace? He goes to the palace and eventually the king of Egypt will put him in charge. There's the tension between the favor of God and the favor of men. Here's the tension. The favor of God may at times look like the favor of men, but it's different. Let me explain. How could Joseph have experienced the favor of men with his brothers? The only way Joseph could have experienced the favor of men with his brothers is to have compromised, perhaps not tell them about the dream, which would be to not share the word of God with them, Perhaps not obey his father the way he had obeyed his father, so that somehow his brothers would like him more. How about in Potiphar's house? Well, in Potiphar's house, one could argue that Joseph could have just compromised himself with Potiphar's wife in order to avoid the whole scenario. Now, ultimately, we know that that would have just ended up in a bigger problem later on, but he could have compromised there. There are a number of ways wherein Joseph could have compromised himself in order to achieve the favor of men. However, he did not compromise himself. And in not compromising himself, at every point, what happens? Men despise him. Men want to kill him. Men put him in a pit. Men put him in a prison. But what does the favor of God do? The favor of God puts him in authority. Everywhere he goes. If we try to achieve the favor of men, we will not experience the favor of God. If we try to achieve the favor of men, we will not achieve the favor of God. The question is, which do we seek? Joseph did not seek the favor of men. And yet, at every point, he achieved favor with God. And in achieving favor with God, ended up in positions that were favored among men. What's our tendency? Our tendency is to attempt to be liked by men, instead of attempting to be liked by God. Our tendency is to sort of stick a wet finger in the air, find out which way the wind is blowing... But here's how we justify it. We justify it by saying, no, 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 no. What I want to do is I want to represent God. And because I want to represent God and I want people to hear God's word, what I will do is I will become more like the world around me so that when the world around me sees me as one of them, they will be more likely to listen to me. So I will go over here and try to achieve the favor of men so that I can do God a favor and get the Word of God to people who otherwise would not listen. Ever heard that one before? You ever heard that one before? We're just trying to get the Word of God to people who would not listen. So we are compromising, trying to achieve the favor of men, so that men will hear the Word of God. Is that what Joseph did? Never. Never. Joseph, why don't you become more like your brothers so that they will maybe listen to you? And in fact, why don't you just sort of change up the interpretation of the dream so that your brothers will like you a little more? No, he didn't do that. He simply opens his mouth and speaks. And some would argue, yeah, and look at what, look at what happened. His brothers didn't listen to him. Uh, yet. He goes to Egypt. Does he compromise himself? No. He never does. He continues to be a distinguished and distinct representative of God in the midst of this culture of opposition. Now, does this mean that he sort of, you know, thumbs his nose at the culture? No. In fact, he's a representative of God, and as a representative of God, he comes to Potiphar's house. He doesn't compromise. What does Potiphar do? Potiphar puts him over all of his house. How does he perform? Admirably. Admirably. And Potiphar, the Egyptian, prospers because Joseph is in his house. Is that you? When he gets to prison... How does he perform? Admirably. And the prison runs more smoothly because he's in the prison. When he gets to the palace, how does he perform? Admirably. And Egypt is rescued because he's there. But at any point, if he compromises in order to become like them, he perishes with them. How do we reach people in our community that are hard to reach? The answer, with the gospel. Amen. Yeah, but there are people who won't listen to us. Yeah, there have always been people who won't listen to us. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation. To all those who believe, the Jew first, and also to the Greek. In fact, turn with me if you will. I want you to see something. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. This is Paul before the Areopagus. And ironically, this is one of the passages that people go to in order to make an argument for seeking the favor of men. They go here and they say, see, when when Paul was there in Athens, he preached on what would in our day be the Oprah Winfrey show, basically. Okay? He made it to the Oprah show. He made it to that place that everybody goes to watch and just listen to people talk about whatever is new. Well, how did he make it to the show? Look at Acts chapter 17. Look at Acts chapter 17, and look beginning at verse 16. Now we know later on that he preaches there, and we could say much about his sermon, which, by the way, was straight between the eyes, not only the gospel, but it was the gospel attacking their worldview at every point. He was not preaching to win friends and influence people. He was attacking their worldview at every point. He was not trying to be cool like them. He was not trying to be accepted by them at any point. But look at what happens here, beginning verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this idle babbler wish to say? By the way, that term idle babbler in the Greek, it's actually an insult. It's an insult. It's a term that is used for one who goes around like a chicken, just sort of bending down, picking things up, and then spitting them out before digesting them properly. The idea is that he's spewing ideas that he doesn't really understand himself. It's an insult. They are not saying, boy, he's cool, he dresses like us, he talks like us, this is great, he has favor with us, now we'll hear him. It's not what he's saying, they insulted him. Some said, what does this Bible to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching some foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. How about that? Here's the argument that people make. Here's what you need to do. You need to go in the culture... And write songs that sound like the culture. And then when you're famous, write songs that talk about Jesus. You need to go in the culture and write books that sound like the culture. And then when you get on Oprah, you can talk to more people about Jesus. Because after all, isn't that what Paul did? No, actually Paul preached Jesus Christ and the resurrection from day one. And that's in fact how he made it to the Oprah show. Because of the favor of God, not the favor of men. Here's the beautiful thing about Joseph. When Joseph finally stands in the palace, no one can come to Joseph and say, Joseph, will you write down for us all of the techniques that you used to become so powerful in this culture so that we can reproduce it in the lives of others who want to become famous in their cultures? Because here's what Joseph would have said. God spoke through a dream. I interpreted it to my brothers and they hated me. They sent me to Egypt. A woman made advances and because of what I believe about God and His truth, I rejected them. My reward, she had me sent to prison. The king's cupbearer and the king's baker came into the prison. They had dreams. I knew something about that. I spoke the word of God to them. Asked the one who was going to live. Amen. Cupbearer had a good dream. <laughs> hey, good news. Three days, you're going back to the palace. The baker hadn't shared his dream. But when he heard how good the cupbearer's dream came out, he said, you know what? I need to go ahead and share mine. Joseph, no soft sell at all. Yeah, um, yours, kind of the same. Three days, both of your heads will be lifted up. He is in one way, (laughs) yours in another. Joseph, how'd that work for you? Because again, we're taking notes so that we can be powerful in our culture. How'd that work for me? I spent two more years in prison. But that's okay, because after that, you got out, right? And everything was good. No. No. After that, I got out, and I had to be number two in command to a pagan who does not know my God and does not serve my God. And I had to be his number two in command so that I could rescue all of his people who don't know my God and don't serve my God. And for another decade and a half, I wouldn't see my family. That's how it worked for me. You don't get a strategy from Joseph about how to win friends and influence people. You don't get a strategy from Joseph about how to gain political appointment. All you get from Joseph is, God speaks, I echo. Third tension tension between persecution and dominion there is a tension between persecution and dominion what what do I mean by this tension between persecution and dominion well on the one hand here is this picture of Joseph who ultimately go with me to chapter 41 the second dream has been interpreted at the end of chapter 40 he's told each individual what's going to happen after two years Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up from the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. What a terrible dream, by the way. Amen. That's just bad. What happened? I had a dream and some fat cows came out of the Nile and some skinny, ugly, nasty ones came out and then they ate the good ones. Really? You, you eat very late often? You're... And Pharaoh awoke and fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven years of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Again, there's that tension. Word of God, word of man. As a result of it, what does God do? God demonstrates to Pharaoh that there is one who speaks for God, and he's not these magicians. And as a result, let's read on. Look at verse 37. We won't go too far into this because we'll look at this on next week, but he interprets Pharaoh's dreams and tells Pharaoh what to do. In verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this and whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. There's this tension between dominion and persecution. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, here we see that God's people, because we're equipped with God's word, it sets us apart in the kingdom of men. And because it sets us apart in the kingdom of men, even Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's not the only one through history to recognize this. Pharaoh recognizes there is something about you, Joseph, and he says very clearly, it's God. And because of God working in your life, I need you to be in this position. That has happened to the people of God throughout history in lands everywhere that they've gone. The people of God rise up in a place and that place flourishes. And there have been people of God who have advanced to very high positions. And rightly so. Rightly so. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. This is what God has called man to do. Even beyond that, look at Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that good? That we go forth in the power of God with the Word of God, and as a result of going forth in the power of God and with the Word of God, we take this world as we find it and to the glory of God make it better when we're gone. And as New Covenant believers, here's what's beautiful. We go forth in the power of God with the Word of God, and we take men as we find them, preach the gospel to them, the kingdom advances, and this world is better for it. However, turn with me if you will, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 15. Because here's the great irony. And this is why you need the whole picture of redemptive history. Because oftentimes we go here and we look at this part of Joseph's story. And and there's a couple of things that we do. We think that this is actually a, a, a lesson on how to win friends and influence people and how we can take over government and be in great positions in government and so on and so forth. And we can change the government for the better. Folks, Joseph did not change the government of Egypt. Let me say that again. Joseph did not change the government of Egypt. In fact, after Genesis, there comes another book. It's called Exodus. What do we find in Exodus? Egypt, not so nice. God did not send Joseph to Egypt in order to take over the government of Egypt so that Egypt would become more godly. God sent Joseph to Egypt for one reason and one reason alone. That is to rescue his people. After his people are rescued, they are in Egypt in bondage for over 400 years. And so, on the one hand, we have Joseph who has risen to a position of power. But on the other hand, we do not have this picture in the history of God's redemptive plan, that his idea is that his people will somehow establish the kingdom here on earth. But what do we have? John 15, beginning verse 18. Go back to 16. Uh, well, 15, yeah, 1518. 1518 is good enough. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Does that sound like God's plan is for the people of Christ to somehow establish the kingdom here on earth? It doesn't. Jesus says, here's a promise, folks. They're going to hate you. That's not the only place. Look in John chapter 17. Look at 13 to 16. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word... And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Turn with me to First Corinthians chapter one. And look beginning in verse twenty six. It became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And how can we forget Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. So there's our tension. The tension between dominion and persecution. And we see it right there in the life of Joseph. Is Joseph exercising dominion? Is Joseph, in this point, a powerful man representing God? Yes. Will Joseph's people continue this on? No. In fact, after a while they're going to leave Egypt. And when they leave Egypt, after their wanderings, they're going to establish a nation. And it's going to be a powerful nation. However, what's going to happen to that nation? Well, for a while, they will be on the top of the heap. Then they will be divided. Then they will be defeated. And eventually, we will find them in the New Testament under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Never to rise again. Why? His kingdom is not of this world. That's why. His kingdom is not of this world. So what do we do in the meantime? Do we sort of stick our heads in the sand and say, well, since his kingdom is not of this world, let's never do anything. No. His kingdom is not of this world, but we serve a God who uses his people to advance his kingdom. Sometimes that's going to look like us being in the palace like Joseph. More often than not, it's going to look like the next 400 years. And either way, God be praised. But in the midst of it, here's what we're reminded of. Don't be upset that Joseph didn't establish that kingdom. Because the one who would establish the kingdom was the one who was later to come. It is the Christ himself, whose kingdom is already and not yet. His kingdom is established and moves forward as we proclaim the gospel. But His kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. Do members of His kingdom, through being faithful to the Word of God, serve as a blessing to the kingdom of man? Yes, we serve as a blessing to the kingdom of man. Does that at times mean that we advance within the kingdom of man? Yes, at times it means we advance in the kingdom of man. But there's one kingdom and one kingdom only that we're worried about advancing, and that is the kingdom of Almighty God Himself. We have dual citizenship. And one of our passports always trumps the other. Our kingdom of God passport always trumps our kingdom of man passport. So there is this tension between persecution and dominion. And here's what's unfortunate. What's unfortunate is when we're in the midst of the dominion part of the cycle, and things are well with us, we have a tendency to forget God. When we're in the midst of the persecution part of the cycle, we have a tendency to remember God, but only so that we can get back to the other part of the cycle. Amen. So what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. What it looks like is right now, Right here in the United States of America, we have a lot of Christians who are looking forward with more anxious anticipation to November 2nd than they are to the return of the King of Kings. Why? Because we believe that our citizenship is of this world. And it's not. Let me just let you in on a little secret. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. November 2nd is not going to change our plight. I can guarantee you that. I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet. November 2nd is not going to change our plight. All it's going to do is put us in another situation where we say, Wow, I thought that if we got those guys in office, things would be different. Why? We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Does that mean we give up on this place? absolutely not we've got work to do here it's gospel work and it's kingdom work does that mean that we just don't ever think that things are going to change absolutely not I believe God can bring revival I believe God can bring awakening but what is that? that is the kingdom of God advancing and people's lives being changed and transformed because of the advancement of the kingdom of God which is precisely what we saw in the life of Joseph What we saw in the life of Joseph was not a political victory. What we saw in the life of Joseph was the supernatural hand of God preserving his people. And for that moment, he just happened to use a political position. But lest his people trusted in politics too long, it was over. Just like that. Don't forget this. Because if we forget this, we forget the last tension. And that is the tension... Between the physical salvation of Israel and the spiritual salvation of Israel. What's wrong with the kingdom of man? It's nothing inherently wrong with the kingdom of man, other than it's made up of men. But what's wrong with the kingdom of man is that a kingdom of man solution will only solve problems in the kingdom of man. And man's greatest problem is not a kingdom of man problem. Man's greatest problem is a spiritual problem. And to the degree that the kingdom of man can be useful in advancing God's cause, praise God for that. But to the degree that it takes worship that belongs to God, God forbid. To the degree that it takes allegiance that belongs to God, God forbid. To the degree that it causes God's people to bow the knee there rather than here, God forbid. If you think the highlight of Joseph's life is that he ended up in a position of power in a government of pagans, God help you. The highlight of Joseph's life is yet to come. The highlight of Joseph's life is a spiritual redemption. And this little measly position as Pharaoh's right-hand man pales in comparison to what God does spiritually with His real Israel. That's the significance, people. And as you and I exercise our dual citizenship in the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, let's remember these tensions. There's a tension between the word of man and the word of God. Where do we fall? Always on the side of the Word of God. There is a tension between the favor of man and the favor of God. On what side do we fall? Always on the side of the favor of God. God can take care of whatever favor of man we need. There is a tension between persecution and dominion. Where do we fall? Always on the side of dominion because we're always advancing the kingdom of God. We never allow persecution to get us off message. There is a tension between the spiritual salvation and physical salvation. On what side do we fall? Always on the side of spiritual salvation. That is always what's most important. Does that mean the physical doesn't matter? Absolutely not. But it means that the spiritual is more important. It means that the greatest tool with which we are armed is not the ballot box is not the food bank. It's the gospel. Does that mean that the ballot box is unimportant? No. Does that mean that the poor shouldn't be fed? No. But what it means is that if we are to prioritize in something and to be known for something, let it be the same thing that Joseph was known for. Joseph's a man in powerful position. He must be a great politician. Actually, he's no politician at all. He's just a man who speaks for God. And more often than not, he ended up in bad places for it. In the end, he still ended up in a bad place. Why? He's number two in command to a pagan king of a pagan nation. And sparing the lives Of his oppressors. Now you think about that for a moment. God used Joseph. Not only to save his brothers. But to strengthen the very nation. That would crush them. For 400 years. Why? Because God's plan is bigger. Than the city of man. I don't know where you struggle with your allegiance in these areas. But I know you struggle. But as you do, remember these tensions are real. And our responsibilities are certain. Always on the side of the Word of God. Always on the side of the favor of God. Always on the side of the advancement of the kingdom. And always on the side of our greatest need, which is our spiritual need that is only met with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're not holding to that, believing that, communicating that, sharing that, hoping in that, trusting in that, then we are actually trusting and hoping in the wrong kingdom and one that will not abide. That your trust be in Christ. If you learn anything from Joseph, learn that. His political success happened in spite of his obedience or disobedience to man. Let that be said of us. Did you bow with me?